ability to attack ballistic missiles, as far as I know today, it was just cruise missiles. And cruise missiles can be, even if they can't be detected as easily as ballistic missiles, they can be shot down more easily than ballistic missiles. So it's, it's always going to be a combination of very good long-range radar and a bunch of firing solutions to actually intercept and engage and, and take down those missiles. So that's why the systems like Iris-T, SAMT, hopefully one day, Patriot, you know, with this long-range radar capability is arguably more important than anything else because at the end of the day, you know, Ukraine has a bunch of ways to take things out, everything from S-300s to Bukes and so on and so forth. But it's being able to properly detect them in time and track them. That is the thing that I would argue they would need more than anything. So more long-range radars. And then, of course, you know, if you don't do that, then, of course, fighters. But, you know, we're, we're back to early March when we're all in the space arguing for, for the MiG. So everyone kind of knows that, I think. But there's a lot of ways to, to be successful here. And I just think people have to realize that, you know, yes, a solution is getting Ukraine missiles that go a thousand kilometers, but that's not going to that's not going to stop these attacks. Right. It's going to be helpful, very helpful on the battlefield. But the attacks look like they're going to continue until Russia runs out, which the Ukrainian government has said they only they believe Russia only has enough uh, missiles left to do three or four massive strikes like the one on Monday. I mean, who knows? I think they have a reason for saying this. I hope it's because they're trying to alleviate people's fears and kind of show that Russia is within its uh, last breaths here. I mean, who really knows? Because by the time Russia runs out, they could have access to, you know, Iranian missiles and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, we should keep pressing hard to get a air defense because I don't think Russia's going to stop anytime soon. But there's a lot of different ways. I mean, really anything would help. Um, everything from, like, for example, right, these either modified Avengers or Gephardts or actual Avengers these things, you know, yes, they're mobile. Yes, they should use in the battlefield. But if there's some power stations that are not really in a good place, as in very far from Kiev, so they, they can't be near the Iris-T or NASAM's coverage, then, you know, two or three of these things basically act in a lot of ways like um, CRAMs in terms of the function. And so for, for cruise missiles or drones that get to that point, you know, yes, these things could be ser serving a different role in the battlefield. But if Ukraine had enough of them, then they could at least, you know, keep the power going uh, in that area. And as far as I've heard, and maybe you know a little bit more, Wendy, um, at least the mayor of Lviv and a couple other places have reported that power will be back in the morning to most of these cities. Also, the EU, I believe, promised, was it $370 million or, um, to help bring electronic, uh, you know, electricity via generators. And that's something, too, on the USAID package as well. Very great generators, which should go a long way to alleviating at least the hospitals in the key areas where it's uh, life-threatening to lose power. Uh, yes, indeed, CJ. Yeah, thanks for that. The, 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 U, the EU has announced a package um, including generators for Ukraine. Um, and this package includes, yeah, is it, well, it's, it's given us a mass supply. It's uh, titled a mass supply of electric generators from the EU to Ukraine. Um, so yeah, this is this is good news. Uh, evidently, given that this is a very carefully timed attack um, during winter, and as as the weather gets colder, and it's it's designed to make the vulnerable in Ukraine freeze, um, and uh, so that that is most welcome news. Um, yeah, and the with with regards to uh, Lviv, yeah, you were absolutely correct. The mayor of Lviv has uh, announced um, uh, that power is. Is due to be restored uh, soon. Uh, repair work is currently ongoing. 
So, uh, yeah, that's excellent news. I mean, we've heard from a, a fair number of speakers today who have conveyed their understandable frustration of seeing more civilian deaths in Ukraine. Despite, despite this war being nine months long, well, eight years plus nine months, of course. Um, but there, there is there, there is perhaps some good news that can be gleaned from uh, from these attacks, and um, and and that is that, that there is a de- depleting stock of missiles which can carry out this attack. Um, and it's uh, we, we saw a pretty good thread, I thought the other uh, was it yesterday from John Ridge who outlined this in some some quite good detail. Um, that, production capacity of these missiles cannot actually meet um, the, 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 the demands of, you know, that the, the Moscow has in terms of these attacks. They can't actually continue every Monday, as we've seen. Um, but uh, unfortunately, they, uh, they are still continuing. And uh, some of the systems that, uh, that you highlighted, CJ, yeah, they, they sound pretty effective. Those CRAMs in particular, um, and uh, anti-drone drones. I also like the sound of that. CJ. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this because I'm just so far away from the conflict. But if you told me that there was going to be 70 extremely advanced, um, you know, very large missiles headed to my country, and um, and you, you told me that. I was going to intercept so many and, you know, four people were still going to die. I'm not saying that's a win. It really isn't, obviously. But at the same time, like, you know, one thing we know for certain, right, we know Russia has no regard for civilian life. So these decisions that the Ukrainians are making on which missiles to engage and which missiles to let go, it's a terrible decision. It's a terrible spot to be. And I know I certainly wouldn't want to be in that decision. But, you know, if it's the matter, if it's a decision between a section of a town losing power and, you know, a missile slamming into a residential building. These are the kind of decisions that these people are making, right? They're, they're trying to save as many lives in the short term as possible. Um, not saying they're making deliberate choices to, to not protect power, but this is when you don't have as many supplies as you need. These are the, the kind of considerations you, are, you have to make. And so that's why it's so important that they get as much as possible. So they don't have to make these kind of decisions between, uh, you know, life, death or no, no electricity. And that's why everything must be given, you know, if, if they're to protect themselves as long as Russia can still make really crappy missiles. So unless someone has actual evidence that they are not, uh, you know, they're not targeting civilian areas, which we know not to be true because we, we see the footage of these burned out uh, residential complexes, then they're either missing wildly or Ukraine is, you know, pretty skillfully and uh, pretty incredibly really attacking or defending with what they have and preventing as much civilian loss as possible. Uh, but this seems to be an ongoing trend with them, you know, vi- valuing human life uh, above all else. So no reason to hold back in, in giving them as much as they need. Uh, 100% CJ. Um, yeah, we, we saw Odessa hit as well today and um, Kiev Oblast in general. And um, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of sky that needs to be covered. And um uh, yeah, it's 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 a terrible decision to have to take. Um, the the we, we we have to take heart, some heart from the the news that 51 out of 70 were shot down because it's um it, it, you know uh, with it without international support for saving Ukrainian lives, 
that number of 51 would be considerably lower. Thank you. Uh, Rusty, you've got your hand up. Yeah, so I have a question for uh, CJ about um, the missile arch, arch arsenal of uh, Mos uh, the Muscovites and Oleksiy um, Resnikov, the defense minister of Ukraine, uh, tweeted a picture showing what, what they believe is the remaining stock of the Russian military arsenal. And um, in it... Uh, it says that uh, 6,980 S-300 missiles remain out of uh, 8,000. So I'm just wondering, um, how dangerous are the S-300 compared to the other missiles, since that's uh, supposedly the biggest stock they have? Yeah, this is a great question, and it's a question of what a system was designed for versus how the Russians are using it. So S-300, as we all know, is a relatively potent air defense system. You know, that it's now getting on an age quite a bit. And so when uh, Russia first started to run low, in, um, especially in Kherson, on Krasnopol and other air-guided munitions, they, they switched over to using S-300s in certain sectors as a ground attack role. The devastation was pretty large and mostly felt in Mikolaev, even though they weren't necessarily very accurate. They still were, were pretty devastating in that regard, but they don't have the range of any of the other systems listed in that infographic, right? Probably at most 120 kilometers, but even then, it's an air defense missile at heart, so it's really not something they want to... They can't really use them in a military setting very well due to the inaccuracy inherently involved. And, um, you know, unlike a, a Tosca or an Iskander, you know, something that's also somewhat inaccurate, it doesn't pack, you know, it's not a thousand plus pounds of explosives. So sometimes you can get away with not having a very accurate weapon if it's, you know, very large. And that's not really what the S-300 is. So really the only way uh, Russia has used them so far and probably will continue to use them is as a, you know, terror weapon against cities like Kharkiv and so on and so forth. But yes, they do have a lot. But we have to remember with the introduction of harms, you know, basically, uh, Ukraine can now pick and choose which S-300 batteries to hit, which ones they know are going to be a bit more static. And that's why in Zaporizhia, you've seen Ukraine target S-300s that are, you know, configured for air defense because, well, they have radars and they're actively queuing with harms missiles and other ones which are more static and used in ground attack. They use HIMARS because they're not necessarily going anywhere. So Ukraine's figured this out. Um, but really, unfortunately, Gimlers can't outrange the S-300s which means Ukraine needs a longer-range missile for ground attack, which means they need to attack them. So really everything always comes back to that um, because, again, I think people, they, everyone is you know, emotional and rightfully so about these terrible civilian attacks, but Ukraine isn't ever going to get enough long-range missiles to uh, impact you know, the Russian air bases because if Ukraine showed up tomorrow with the Sapsen that has you know, 600 to 1,000-kilometer range, these Russian bombers will still have a longer range because, you know, they have these missiles and whatnot. So we have to remember that the most important thing to center everything on is, of course, the, the air defenses in Ukraine, but also on giving the Ukrainian army what it needs to to win this fight. And that, that really resides on getting them attack arms. We We have the privilege of being joined by General Ben Hodges. Hey, guys. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Thank you for joining us. We're just going through a few uh, technical um, last-minute checks, uh, so apologies for keeping you waiting. We'll be with no, you no, in. It's okay. Moment. 
I, I was really enjoying listening to uh, CJ there. It was excellent. Thank you, sir. I know we're definitely on the same page about this, so I definitely uh, have a couple questions for you regarding it. Well, but your your technical uh, descriptions of those things is um, superb, and I, I'm sitting here taking notes as you were talking, so uh, thanks for that. All righty. So I hope I can be heard now. I apologize, but in the very moment when I was about to highlight that CJ made such a perfect transition, uh, in that very second, uh, my audio died. General Ben Hodges, welcome. Thank you, and, and happy Thanksgiving to uh, those of you who will be observing it tomorrow. Happy Thanksgiving, but at the same time, obviously, it is a very momentous day today. Uh, Ukraine has suffered yet another uh, blast of attacks uh, by the Russian armed forces. At the same time, uh, with uh, uh, what CJ just highlighted, with a bit more range, Ukraine could defend itself significantly more effectively. Yeah, I, w I would agree with that. Um, and I don't know what else it's going to take for the administration to... Uh, go ahead and say we've got to provide Ukraine what they need to protect innocent people from continuously being murdered. Uh, but it's, this is not just about humanitarian or uh, emotional. Uh, this is about thinking practically and strategically. The, the only reason the Russians or the main reason the Russians are going after cities and civilian targets and especially the power grid, I think, as everybody listening already understands, uh, is to make Ukrainian cities uninhabitable during the winter to and so to put hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians on the road into Central and Western Europe. So as what General Breedlove called weaponization of refugees, um, so that this would put pressure on European capitals to in turn put pressure on uh, on Kiev. So th that's that's what this is about. And, and I think they're going to keep doing it as long as they have the ability to do it. How quickly should the administration, how quickly should the Europeans, how quickly should the coalition of the willing now act? And uh, why have well, they failed so in the recent Of weeks? course, it should have happened about four or five months ago. But we are, we are where we are. Um, there are capabilities that are out there that could be delivered, I think, very quickly. Now, uh, the reasons that they haven't done this yet, I can only speculate, is, uh, but based on the reporting I see and, and what I hear, um, the administration, and by the way, they're not alone. I mean, the same is true of London, Berlin, Paris, every other, uh, or most other governments, is they want to make sure that Ukraine doesn't lose. They want they, they don't want Russia to win, but they can't bring themselves to say, we want Ukraine to win. Because if you say you want Ukraine to win, then you have that means you have to give the things required for Ukraine to actually defeat Russia on the battlefield. And so um, I, I think there is concern, at least this is what I have heard and read, that if if we provided attackums uh, to uh, Ukraine, then they would use them against targets inside Russia. Well, of course they would, and, that's, and they should, because that's where most of these missiles and drones are coming from, is inside Russia or inside Belarus. Um, but even if, if the government uh, in Kiev says, okay, we won't do that, we won't use them against targets in Russia and Belarus, but at least let us hit targets in Crimea, from which uh, you know the Black Sea Fleet is launching Iskanders, uh, drones that are fired from inside uh, Crimean bases. Certainly there's reason to give uh, Ukraine the ability uh, to hit those things. I mean, it's 
almost exactly 300 kilometers from Odessa to Sevastopol, straight line distance. So if they had ATACMs, they, they could be making Crimea untenable already. And that would mean pushing back both the Russian Air Force as well as um, um, making, as you said, uh, Sevastopol as a, a launch pad for their Navy and therefore their naval forces untenable. And making these areas untenable should have been for a long time already the policy at hand. Uh, Ukraine cannot carry this out without international support. Ukraine cannot carry this out without these long-range weapons. Still, they are not forthcoming. I, I think that the, the White House ought to feel more confident um, after these midterm elections. Um, several of the candidates who were arguing for, you know, why are we providing all this to Ukraine? We should be focused more internally in America. Most of those guys were defeated, and still over 70% of Americans uh, support providing more capability to Ukraine. So the White House has, uh, I think, plenty of bipartisan support for doing that. I have to think that there's something about China here. Uh, I don't know this, but I think that China has probably communicated that due to their sort of Shanghai agreement with Russia, that... Um, that they have to support Russia if Russia proper is attacked. But they included in that agreement that this did not include any of the occupied territories of Ukraine. So China doesn't have a doesn't have an obligation or feel responsibility if uh, Russian claims to uh, Donetsk, uh, Luhansk, uh, Zaporizhia, Hersa, anywhere, if those are if those are attacked. So we should be helping um, Ukraine throughout all of that. But the the idea of hitting targets uh, inside Ukraine or in U.S. providing capabilities that enable that, I, I just I have to think there's something to do with China, but I, I just don't know that. So this is this is Hodge's speculation here. How do you see the European response at the moment evolving? You've been traveling and we've seen this season arguing, interviewing, talking to many people across many places all over Europe. What is your impression over the last four weeks whilst Ukraine has been making progress in Hassan? Uh, three things. Uh, number one, there, an expectation of American leadership. So, so what the, the U.S. does, obviously, is, is going to be important. Um, the second thing, though, is I don't, I don't get the sense of any lessening of support for Ukraine. I think people are appalled in, in many different countries. They are appalled at the endless uh, murder of innocent Ukrainian people and the war crimes uh, of attacking civilian infrastructure that is not related to military capability. These these are you know all violations of, of Geneva. Uh, and so um, I think that we're going to see soon, like within the next couple of months, from the ICC, the International Criminal Court, They're going to start making announcements about uh, investigations and, and charges against people in the Kremlin for genocide and specifically for the kidnapping and deportation of uh, Ukrainian kids. And so I think I think this is coming. I think that uh, here in Germany, where I live, over 60 percent favor providing more help to uh, Ukraine. That, that's that's powerful. And so. I don't get a sense of a slackening. UK just announced they're going to provide three helicopters. That'll be the first time that air, manned aircraft uh, are being provided uh, 
to to Ukraine. So uh, Turkey's announcement that they're going to provide some uh, MLRS, long-range rocket systems. Th- these are all positive developments. And uh, I, I think the uh, people are inspired by Ukrainian resistance and, and the will. Um, so because of all that, I, I, that's why I, I remain very optimistic of, of the how this is going to turn out. With all that public support, how is it possible? How it become politi- uh, political statements and politicians' actions, such as in Germany, still tenable? How is it feasible that they can get away with that procrastination? Well, um, I, actually, I think you know Germany better than me. Uh, but in this this coalition government, and I'm not an expert on, on Germany. I, I live here, and I've tried to understand why it is like it is. I, I was in a uh, – gave a presentation last night to 60 uh, Germans, a mix of university students and then some older citizens, and we talked about this. And I asked, why why is it that Germany has a hard time? I, why do Germans – like the self-confidence to be more forward-leaning and to take on the more leadership, more of a leadership role inside Europe. Certainly the United States expects that. And I think most European countries would actually prefer a more direct uh, German leadership role. But in in this coalition government where you've got the SPD, the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the the Liberals, the Free Democrats, The SPD, which is the lead party, Chancellor Schultz, it's in their DNA. I mean, that's where most of the pro-Russian sort of uh, sentiment over the decades has uh, resides is in the SPD, and and so Chancellor Schultz is is getting pressure on his uh, from the Greens and the uh, Liberal Democrats to do more, uh, but he's having to deal with inside his own party. Um, a resistance to to doing this, and, and I think I think he's he's wrestling with it himself. But I was I was heartened the other day after this incident where the the missile landed in Poland, and uh, Chancellor Schultz said basically what President Biden and, and Secretary General Stoltenberg said. He said it doesn't matter who fired that missile; it was Russia's fault because Russia is the one that's attacking civilian targets, and the Ukrainians are having to defend themselves. I thought that was a pretty bold statement. Uh, and then when you look at uh, the, Fed, the president of the German Federal Republic, Mr. Steinmeier, and Sigmar Gabriel, the former foreign minister, both of whom are from the SPD, both said we were wrong. I think Germans feel betrayed by Moscow, and that's why there's a hardening uh, in attitude towards the Russians. Well, there's a certain element of uh, self-betrayal in there, but then again, I agree with you, the hardening can sense and you get this from the public statements but still there's no action yeah well i'm i'm not defending them i'm uh, and i'm not satisfied either um what you know why germany can't provide tanks for example uh, but of course they're quick to say well the americans are not doing it either so that that's a fair that's a fair point i think germans should not hide behind the us on this but i i can't answer the question well why doesn't the administration provide tracked vehicles to Ukraine. I mean, that, especially now in this, uh, given the soil and the the lack of traffic ability down in southern Ukraine during the winter, tracked vehicles are are more uh, useful than our wheeled vehicles. What what is the problem 
with providing uh, some model of Abrams tank or Leopards or Challengers to uh, to Ukraine. What, what what is what is the real reason for not doing that? And it escapes me. Well, you said it, the expect, uh, expectation of leadership. It seems that uh, only the U.S. can break the mold. And whilst we're at it, CJ, you, uh, given the fact that we only have uh, 30 minutes a day with uh, General Van Hodges, let's go to questions. CJ. Yes, and I think uh, this is something Craig will be very interested in as well. Sir, so on this very topic, you know, one of the things I've heard from my fellow service members who have trained with Ukrainians is, They recognize they have a huge advantage um, in mobility due to the light vehicle footprint that they're currently operating on on all, all fronts. So I, I understand generally that, you know, if they were to stop the war, retask, organize their army, it would be uh, obviously preferred to do exactly what you're saying. But I wonder, you know, to what end with the 150 Humvees today and 100 other light vehicles, are we setting Ukraine up for success by giving them aid in the way that they currently fight? Or should the U.S. and other countries be pushing more to change sort of the army organization model of, of Ukraine? Obviously, both come with its own set of uh, pros and cons. That's a, a very good question. Uh, you know, uh, most armies, when you're in a protracted conflict, you're fighting the fight in front of you. But at the same time, you're trying to to modernize and and be able to fight the long fight as well. So, um, as technology, new, new equipment, new capabilities become available, uh, you're, you're constantly having to train new units to replace losses. Uh, so there is a, um, uh, a uh, parallel effort to making sure you, you're accomplishing tasks now, trying to inflict pain on the enemy, but at the same time, you've got Uh, another effort going on to train up new formations, bring in new equipment. I mean, this this is this is uh, actually normal. Uh, and I think the U.S., of course, with the uh, I don't think it's been officially announced yet, but the creation of a three star headquarters uh, that will be focused specifically on helping with modernization and of uh, defense and security institutions um, that will include you know, equipment, training, education, all of that. It's important that that's going on at the same time that we're trying to find artillery ammunition for the fight right now. What I what has impressed me from day one of the first time I was alongside Ukrainian forces at the training area in Yavariv, how technically savvy they are. I mean, this this is, um, they're, they're in a category all of their own. I've I don't know soldiers from any country, including the U.S., U.K., Germany, uh, where soldiers learn more quickly how to use new technology. And, of course, most of the people listening here are, are aware that Ukraine was the industrial, the defense industry for the Soviet Union. So, I mean, this is where most of the technology and the expertise already resides. So anybody that says, well, we don't want to give them Abrams because you know, it'll take too long to train. That is absolute nonsense. Same with Leopard or any other vehicle. They they will figure out how to use it. And and you know my first experience with them was with Q36 radar, counterfire radar. Uh, we provided that to Ukrainians, and I doggone it, that radar was better than I knew it was um, once it got in the hands of Ukrainians. No, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, before we go to Craig here, go Army, beat Navy. Craig, take it away. 
that's okay. I'm sure you'll call us when you guys need us, um, as you notoriously <laughs> always do. Um, so but, uh, what I wanted to kind of talk about, and again, this is probably a question that CJ will enjoy, so I'll return the favor. Um, what I have seen, sir, is uh, a continual adaption of Ukrainian forces, and I'll describe it this way. When the artillery first started getting to Ukraine, I remember that everything was about the M777, getting those online. We've seen the statistics, hundreds of thousands of rounds sent to Ukraine. But you kind of touched on it very briefly, and I think CJ has mentioned it as well, this ammo discrepancy or non-ideal stockpiles or throughput of artillery ammunition of the 155. Now, this has produced something that I've enjoyed, and that's the deployment of the 105. Um, my question to you would be, when if you touch on CJ's point regarding adaptation, scaling up, maybe increasing the weight size of these HEPMET like uh, Western trucks or using this approach that Ukraine has, which is light and dispersed. To me, I feel like the 105 and its ability to carry lots of ammunition puts you in a best position that the M777 has stepped back into a much more of a strategically deployed unit rather than tactically um it's much more of an operational component now is that fair to say and the 105 is kind of supplemented that brigade sized uh firepower okay so uh there's a reason that we have 105 and 155 uh artillery in the u.s army um is because of transportability uh requirements versus firepower requirements so there's a reason we, we have uh both now um I think that the, uh, the, the mix of, of artillery systems is a little bit of a problem. Oh, it's a significant problem. I, I think there are eight different types of howitzers that have been provided to Ukraine. All well-intended, all good, but the, um, uh, th that creates a massive logistics problem for the Ukrainians um, to, to do repair. I mean, you can imagine if you've got eight different kinds of howitzers, that's eight different lines of repair parts and lubricants and, uh, and, and, uh, and ammunition. And what we have discovered as a result of all this, that uh, in, in within NATO, including the United States, we, we have lost our, our emphasis and focus on standardization. Unbelievably, a 155 round that's fired from a German Panzer Harvester 2000 cannot be fired in a Dutch Panzer Howitzer 2000. It's um, we 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 took our eye off the ball on these things over the last 20 years, and so this war in Ukraine is forcing us to relook not just quantities of ammunition, but why are we not why are we no longer uh, standardized the way we were in the Cold War? So that I think this is one of the things that's going to uh, come come out of come out of all this. Uh, helping the Ukrainians with maintenance. Uh, right now, if one of these Panzer Hobbitzer 2000s goes down, it has to be recovered back to Lithuania or Germany to be repaired. So that means it's out of the fight for weeks. And um, I think that there is a real requirement for getting what, you know, in the Army we would call second and third level maintenance inside Ukraine so that things can be repaired and returned to the fight much more quickly and, and I, th I know that there are efforts underway to do that, uh, to get a commercial solution. Um, if we're not going to put boots on the ground, our own maintainers, then there's a commercial solution out there somewhere 
that uh, that I think is going to come to fruition, hopefully, uh, soon. And that's nothing which can't be done in Jizhov? Uh, I, I don't follow you there, Axel. If you go close to the Polish-Ukrainian uh, border, if you don't want to commit to, a, say, um, a maintenance center for second or third level maintenance in Ukraine for whatever kind of fears or for fear of being bombarded and um, rocketed, you could at least put it, um, say, directly on the side of the Polish border, close to the border. I got you. I got you. Okay. Yeah, and perhaps that's being considered. I mean, the Poles, you know, obviously uh, <laughs> this place in Poland uh, where all the equipment funnels into uh, is probably the most well-protected uh, uh, site in, in uh, NATO Europe in terms of air and missile defense uh, because it is such a, a, a vulnerable target if the Russians were foolish enough to uh, to go ahead and make that terrible miscalculation. But still, it's um, it's about time, you know, getting equipment repaired back into the fight. And a lot of our equipment was not designed to be fired at the rate of fire that the Ukrainians are, are launching artillery. Uh, I think there's probably a lot of artillerymen on the net right now. Um, you know, for a typical American howitzer, normal fire, about 2,000 rounds, and a couple of you please correct me, but about 2,000 rounds, depending on certain factors, is when you have to replace the barrel. And holy hell, I, I imagine some of these Ukrainian units are, are launching 2,000 rounds every couple of weeks. Um, and so that, that's another part of the, uh, of the logistics that's, that's got to be addressed. The ultimate test for weapon system is actual combat. Yeah. Constantine, you had a question for General Hodges. Uh, yes, uh, hello, General, and I'm sorry if, if my question was asked uh, uh, before. Um, I wanted to ask you, what, uh, right now, with all those uh, terror strikes by, by Russia against Ukrainian uh, civilian infrastructure, uh, do you th- what do you think the next uh, piece of kit that can uh, can be supplied to Ukraine that would uh, help mitigate uh, and stop those ter- terror attacks? Well, I, I think that uh, the U.S. Department of Defense and other al- allies and partners are looking for uh, air and missile defense capabilities uh, that can protect. Uh, populations. There, there's no doubt about it. Everybody is looking for what what can be provided, uh, but we've unfortunately we don't have a lot ourselves. I mean, the whole time I was a commander of U.S. Army Europe, I was very concerned about our vulnerability. We have one Patriot Battalion for all of U.S. Army Europe, and, and that battalion, of course, would be going to Ramstein uh, to protect Ramstein Air Base. So it's not like we don't want to give it to Ukraine. We don't have it, and. Um, what we've one of the things we've learned here, of course, is that the requirement for air and missile defense is about a hundred times greater than what we thought it was. It's not just about protecting critical infrastructure; it's about protecting hundreds of millions of European citizens because the Russians are launching multi-million-dollar missiles against apartment buildings uh, by design. So uh, we, we're going to have to uh, figure out how to pro- uh, significantly increase capability. But I think the best way to do this is not to defend sites and hope that we can knock them down. You've got to go to the source. Uh, where are they coming from? The, the bases uh, from where they're being launched um, and, and also these Iranian drones. I don't know how uh, we have not yet figured out a way with uh, uh, friends and partners to, to destroy. Why is there not a big fire at the factory where those things are made? Uh, why, how are they being delivered without being interdicted somehow?
uh, are disrupted. And then, of course, the really embarrassing part is that we're discovering that uh, many of these drones are loaded with components manufactured in the United States. So, you know, we've got to, it's not just about knocking missiles down, which is hard enough. You've got to get to the source, get them before they are actually launched. Yeah, we need to hit them on logistics and production. I completely agree. Uh, if, I don't, if you don't mind, constantly, I would like to go to Rusty, who had patiently his hand up and bend because we have another four minutes before Jennifer Hodges will have to go to, if I'm not quite mistaken, Polish television. Rusty. That's correct, yeah. So I'd just like to say thank you for your service and protecting Europe and NATO. And uh, I would just like to ask, uh, is there any military inventions or adaptations of uh, such inventions that has uh, surprised you um, when you've seen their use in Ukraine? Uh, I, I was uh, impressed with the uh, recent uh, maritime unmanned system. You know, the Navy, U.S. Navy has been putting a lot of money into that. And some European countries are starting to realize that um, to have unmanned maritime systems is a good idea for uh, anti-submarine and countermining and so on. But what the Ukrainians have done, I mean, uh, you know, they are the MacGyver of, uh, of military capability. Uh, their drone strikes recently against the Russian Navy in Sevastopol, that was impressive. And I think this is going to cause uh, Russia... Uh, they've already relocated their submarines away from Sevastopol to Novorossiysk, and I think pretty soon we're going to start seeing other parts of the Black Sea Fleet relocating. All right. Ben, you had your hand up, and then we have Carlos, who's been flying planes. But Ben first. Thank you. Uh, good evening, General. Uh, very good, good evening. Question from Paris. Very good question from Paris. Um, recently, France tried to send a few flicker tanks to Romania and they were blocked at the border, not by a courageous uh, anti-tank artillery crew, but by German bridges. Can I have your reaction on this? Um, so the, the, the delivery of tanks was blocked by Germany? German bridges, uh, because the bridges were unfortunately uh, yeah. not okay. fitting anymore. Okay, yeah, thanks. So, yeah, this, you've, of course, you've touched on uh, a very, very... Uh, important issue and a real vulnerability that we have in the alliance, that it is difficult to move equipment around in Central and Eastern Europe because infrastructure does not support the weight or the dimensions. Uh, and then, of course, there are some places where you st we still have problems crossing borders with so-called war materials. So this uh, this issue of military mobility uh, is important. If, if we cannot move as fast or faster than Russian Federation forces, then I think we run the risk of the Russians thinking that they might be able to get away with an attack on, say, Lithuania um, or Romania before we could actually uh, do anything about it. And, and so uh, I'm glad you highlighted that, that this is still a problem that people thought went away when the EU announced we are we have PESCO and there's a military mobility project for PESCO and that it's all solved. And, and clearly it's not. Once again, we took the foot off the gas pedal. Carlos, last question. Yep, I'll make it real quick. And just I'm with Craig, uh, go Navy, beat Army, since I'm a Marine and we don't really have, we have to join the Army or the Navy there. Uh, real quick, General, I just, I, to close out, I just wanted to ask a question. You know, a lot of people have not served, um, but we're all citizens of our given countries. And I guess 
what would you recommend for people or maybe the emphasis you would put on getting engaged with elected officials? And um, how would you say that uh, people do that here that are listening today? Oh, Carlos, thanks. And thanks for your service. And, you know, the reason we have a Marine Corps is so that the Navy has somebody to dance with. But um, look, <laughs> the uh, it is important that our civilian leadership understands why Ukraine matters, that this is not just about Ukraine as much as we love Ukrainians and Ukrainian history and culture and cuisine and and the people. This is about stability and security in Europe, uh, which is an essential element if we're going to have prosperity in Europe. And that matters to America because Europe is our most important trading partner. So uh, having a Europe that is stable and secure and therefore prosperous is for the benefit or is important for American strategic interests. And of course, um, China is watching this. And if we cannot stick together and uh, and get through some economic hard times and help Ukraine de- defeat defeat Russia the good old-fashioned way, run them off the battlefield, then I think the Chinese will not be terribly uh, impressed with uh, anything that we say about Taiwan or the or the South China Sea. So so this has such bigger implications. It's not just about, you know, why are we giving all this money and equipment to Ukraine? This is about our strategic interests. And so I think um, if our elected officials uh, are able to, to explain that, then probably 70 or 80 percent of the population is going to say, uh, OK, well, that makes sense. And, and, and they'll continue to support it. But in the absence and you will know because of your own service, four different administrations never explained really what was our desired outcome in Afghanistan. I mean, there no, no president of any party said we're going to win and here's what we got to do to win. And here's what win looks like. They never did do it. And so we drifted around for 20 goddamn years and, uh, and it ended terribly. So at the end of the day, um, our civilian leadership has got to explain why this matters. And so I hope you and others, We'll, we'll take every opportunity um, to explain why this matters. This is not charity for Ukraine. This is about our strategic interests. And, of course, most people will not want to hear it. I mean, it's, it's hard to penetrate uh, you know, most families, and this is completely normal in every country. Most families focus on kitchen table type issues. Foreign policy is not at the top of the list of what average families care about. So it, it, it requires a, a relentless, constant effort uh, to explain why this matters. And you got to, you know, when, when somebody comes up with Kremlin narratives, which unbelievably I see coming out of the mouths of some uh, Republican candidates and members and, uh, and on certain people on Fox News, you, you got you to gotta knock those down. Communication. Clear yeah. communication is key. Ben Hodges, General Ben Hodges, thank you very much. Um, I know that you're a civilian today, but given the fact that you've explained yet again what the key aspects are, how the military leads this way and how the civilian population can assist for that war to be won. Thank you for that. Much appreciated. I shall hope we will have you back soon. Uh, If if you'll have me, I'd I'd love to come back. Thank you very much. And, And again, uh, even in Ukraine, there are millions of people that have a lot to be thankful for, and, and they're fighting for it. So I, I do wish all of you a, a happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you very much.